Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Ward and my guest today is Sarah Heller. Sarah is a Master of Wine who sits on the faculty of Vinitaly International also holds the title of VIA, Vienna Italy International, Wine Ambassador. Welcome. Thank you. So today, you and I, or mainly you, hopefully, are going to talk to us about Barolo, which is a DOCG wine from Piemonte in northwest Italy. Oh, well, you've taken all of my facts from me. But okay. yes. <laughs> well, it was great meeting you. <laughs> I like it's a master fun. wine that's concise. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So where, let's said. start with whereabouts. Where is it? Where is um, it? So it's in Piemonte, the northwesternmost um, section of Italy, other than the Valle d'Aosta, but we won't get into get into the too many specifics. Area. Yeah, the skiing area, absolutely, and the country of white truffles. Um, so, arguably, the only great wine region in the world that has a food culture that kind of lives up to the, the oh quality of Tus- wine. Tuscan friends. Ah. You know, I can get you protection. I have a lot of friends in Tuscany. Oh, dear. It's, it's hard to be unbiased about Piemonte. It's You're the, a big fan, then. Yeah, it's the first place I got interested in wine. I was there wine. working at a, at a restaurant as a cook um, in Turin, actually. Um, when I, I took time off from university, and this is how I you ended up on off. this. Yeah, okay. I know that's not very geeky of me, is it? But um, you know, you've got to go out and find find what else is interesting. In so you're working as a chef? I, well, I was working as an apprentice chef, perhaps. It's quite a qu- casual place. The name of it uh, was Boya Faus, which is um, yeah Piemontese dialect for like what they. Um, <laughs> sorry, Piemontese dialect for. For what the. I mean, I don't know. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah, you can, yeah. Okay, what the fuck? (laughs) So it's, um, yeah, it's where I first fell in love with wine, was interested in food. How old were you then? Um, 20. So very young. Mm, At the time, yeah. So that was an early love affair. Indeed, yeah. So then you investigated... Never quite gotten over it. Investigated the wines. Yeah. And obviously, what are the big guns in Piemonte? What are we going to talk about today? Well, so Barolo and Barbaresco. Today, we're going to focus on Barolo. I was actually just in uh, both places um, about 24 hours ago. But today, we'll focus on Barolo, just because there's um, more recent additions to the complexity there with the 2010 uh, MGA... Additions. So MGA is? Uh, Menzione Geografiche Aggiuntive. Um, Which translates as? <laughs> geographical mentions, additional geographical mentions. So nothing particularly sexy. But so what does that mean for the label? <laughs> yeah, it effectively identifies specific vineyard names that are allowed to appear on the on the label because there was a lot of confusion, right? There are crews that are known for being very high quality. So there's a sort of single vineyard areas. Indeed. Rather than um, actual single vineyards, although they can be. Yeah, yeah, really depends on the size. Some are absolutely immense, so like Busia. So you really need to have so more detail. Which village is Busia? How many, how many villages are there in the Barolo DOCG zone? So 11 villages, but five that really have a high concentration of these MGAs and are really known for producing the top wines. So the five are? Uh, La Mora, Barolo, obviously, uh, Castiglione Faletto, uh, Serra Lunga d'Alba, and Monforte d'Alba. And they all sort of have their individual traits. It's largely determined, um, or traditionally it was largely thought to be determined by the nature of the soils. So just one parameter, basically, soil. That's the one traditionally. that... Traditionally. exactly. And um, now? Much more investigation of um, specific exposures and just a, a greater understanding that the soil is, is not uniform 
in the way that people once thought perhaps that it was. There are a lot of different factors obviously starting to change with the climate being in transition, as it were. I don't know if anybody... So what are, I mean, what are the origins of, the, of these soils, just in a nutshell? Yeah, so geologically, um, the whole area is very heavy clay, for the most part, and it really depends on the amount of calcareous material, sand and sandstone. So the heaviest soils, the sort of dense sandstone ones, are more around Serra Lunga d'Alba, Monforte, um, Castiglione, sort of the blend. So what does that, make, what does that, what does that do to the, the Barolos? Yeah. from that particular, they, they high in alcohol, low in alcohol, what does um, it mean? It's not as much about the alcohol as the tannic structure. It's just this robustness, um, this longevity. And it does come across also in the aromatics, you get just a sort of darkness, less obvious aromatic lift. Whereas from the, um, so these are the soils that you can divide them into all different sort of categories. But in terms of the age, that's what was used to be called the Helvetian, um, and now the um, Cerevelian. That's the geological epoch. Yes, exactly. Which um, was when? God, it's all in the Mycenaean, and um, about 12 million years ago. Okay. Versus the Tortonian, which are slightly younger, um, and they're more like seven, eight million years ago. And the Tortonian soils, characteristics are? Um, more sand, um, although there's a huge debate about which ones have more sand, but they're generally lighter in quality and have, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but the, the clays, there are these blue clays, and they tend to produce this sort of lighter, more aromatic, um, pretty style. Earlier, earlier drinking styles, um, particularly La Mora, is known for producing these perfumed, almost Pinot-like styles. And does that go for the colour as well, these changes, and sort of have something on the colour as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of winemaking that goes into the colour of the wines, um, especially, we'll get into maybe modernist and traditionalist later, but um, when people were really focused on extracting as much colour as they could, largely to appeal to sort of American critical tastes, you got completely out of balance. You get wines from La Mora that are really concentrated and dark and don't like, like look like they're made of nebula at all. So, so what you're saying is winemaking is, is there's kind of less of it and it's more the wines are more terroir driven so if we wanted to um, not generalize but say give me some examples of a classic wine not necessarily the producer but a classic part of a particular commune so if you contrast x with y mm. um, you'll see two they're both barolos but they're two very different ones what would you use as a good example if you were teaching yeah i mean probably you would have to get a producers because it's not it's not really about the terroir that that makes these traditional versus not but um I mean, classically, uh, Bartolo Mascarello is a real staunch traditionalist. So where is he based? Well, they have land in Canubi. Where are they? They're in Barolo. And more of a modern style might be Roberto Verstu, and he is in La Mora. And, um, yeah, there's just... The traditionalist-modernist debate, I think, has, has sort of been outgrown by the region. It's it's really probably overplayed among consumers, and so I don't want to perpetuate it too much, but there are still some differences. Well, right. maybe 20 years ago, those differences were much starker, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah. A real clear division between the modernist yeah. and the traditionalist, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, by a lot of people, it's just been boiled down to the modern styles used by Rick and the traditionalists do not. Um, and I think it was so many more things. It was about finding more concentration in the vineyard, um, some of which was positive, right? There was a lot of green harvesting that happened. That, that Maybe sort of, too much sometimes. Yes, absolutely. But I think there was, there tends to be a belief now that traditional is the best, and it's not necessarily true. I think they needed to go through this phase where some well, people modernity. went. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, need, they needed a bit of a bit of an incentive to, to change. Because if you try some of these older wines that were made with these very, very long macerations with, grape, with vines that were maybe higher yielding than they should have been, which 
just got these very hard, bitter tannins that have never really gone away. And uh, and now, the, the, obviously, at the height of the modernist fetish, I will say, um, I've tried some of those wines from the early 2000s, late 90s, from the producers who were really, you know, using things like roto-fermenters, uh, really trying to get as much out of the skins as possible. And those wines are falling apart now, too, for their own reasons, right? The alcohol was too too robust. The, there wasn't actually enough connection of the color to the, to the tannins, and so the, the phenolic chains are just sort of falling apart. So obviously neither extreme is positive, but the vast majority of producers now have come towards the middle. Phenolic chains sounds like a, a rock band, yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, heavy metal. So what yeah. about climate change? Climate change. So definitely there is an awareness in the region that it's going to be challenging for them. It's gonna they're kind of right at the edge. Because it's it's characteristically been thought of as a cool climate region, but with lots of sunshine and all of the all of the allocation of the the um, the MGA is these crews. The decisions about which are the positive ones was based on where the snow melted first. Right. So typically, the the most prestigious ones are the ones that were warmer. So things like Canubi, uh, Vigna Rionda, often amphitheaters where lots of sun was collected. Those are not. I don't want to say those sites specifically, but warmer sites are not necessarily going to be the ones that produce the greatest wines 50 years from now. But viticulture is changing, there, isn't it? Isn't it? Absolutely. In terms of um, you know the classic look was the kind of um, no grass at all in the vineyard. My last visit there I was talking to some organic growers. One of the reasons organics are becoming more popular, leaving grass between the rows, is because you if you have these rain events, you get less yeah. erosion. Also, you can get into the vineyard with your tractor. There's no grass there. It's very slippy and people do die. They fall yeah. off and they die. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was there in 2014 when, when they had exactly the issue that there was just so much rain coming down and people couldn't even get in to spray. It was dangerous to get up there with the little tractors. And it just, it, because of these heavy clays in the soil, it just becomes almost impossible to move around literally so yes there are a lot more people creating a, a swathe uh, wait, no, a sword swarth, sword yeah you can have a swathe <laughs> a swathe of swords pardon me like a queen bring me my, bring me my sword <laughs> my sword yeah Madam, it just would sounds you like odd. some grass or would you like an actual sword, sword. Me, yeah. yeah a swathe yeah, of swords quite right it sounds like a band <laughs> Another band. I mean, we're just going to sprout all these ideas for bands over the course of this conversation. Indeed. So lots of different types of grass being grown, depending on what the needs of the vineyard are. Right. So some that create these very thick straws that then are able to be flattened out and create kind of mulch. Pachamatura is called in, uh, in Italian. Right. Others that um, vetches and, and various leguminous plants that are contributing more nitrogen, others that are taking it out. So I think there's a much greater sensitivity to what the vineyard needs and how the um, grasses can contribute to that, obviously also attracting insects. And, and doing it and also having a grass competition, which isn't actually compete over competing with the vines as well. Indeed. Yeah, 2017, that was a really big challenge, actually, where, where sometimes they, they um, even the most dedicated producers, so for instance, Gaia, have been really working on only flattening their grass, never actually cutting it because that rolling uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Because that takes that takes additional water from the soil. They I believe actually had to, to cut it and sort of clean, um, just because there was so little water especially in the early part of the season. So, yeah, real, real challenges. I mean, when, when you get to the, the most extreme of conditions, I think people have to sort of set aside their, their priorities, which uh, their priority towards creating this sort of sustainable pattern, ironically enough, um, in the most extreme conditions. All right, last question about mm-hmm. the actual Nebbiolo itself from uh, Barolo. Mm-hmm. So what, what does Nebbiolo normally taste of, and what, is it, what makes it different in Barolo? Right, so Flavors Nebbiolo... Flavors or ageability or tannic structure, anything like that. Yeah, um, so Nebbiolo is an interesting one 
one, it is an aromatic, or it's not a, it's not an aromatic red grape in the way that other things like, like Sauvignon Blanc. Um, no, or, or yeah, it's perfume precisely. It's more like Pinot Noir. It's not like some of the genuine aromatic red grapes like Ruque or what am I trying to say? Lacrimora, uh, Lacrim. Lacrima di Moro. Exactly, Lacrima di Moro d'Alba. Kind of got that. They both got those kind of jelly fruit. Yeah, nice, exactly. Yeah. It's not that kind of candied character. It's mm-hmm. the the famous characters are obviously this rose petal and tar. Um, although a lot of modern leaning producers kind of resent this tar characterization. Um, they think of it as something unclean. My argument would be that all the best wines in the world have something a little bit filthy to touch. Um, I didn't think I'd hear you use that on that <laughs> oh, podcast. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Button myself up. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a vital vital trait of, of all great wines, that they, they do something a little bit bent. But... And, and I think you find this to a greater degree in Barolo and Barbaresco than in other areas that grow uh, Nebbiolo. So you can also find it in Valle d'Osta, Valtellina in Lombardia, in the north of Piemonte, um, and in Roero, just across the river, across the Tanaro. But it's only really in Barolo Barbaresco where you get these, these just the, the, the intensity of the layering of the aromatics and also the, the structure. I mean, I think um, Gemigartinara and um, Valtellina are probably coming close in terms of ageability but I haven't had really really old wines from those regions that have the same robustness against time that uh, Barolo does especially. Cool, I just want to say thanks to my guest today Sarah Hello, Master of Wine via Italian Wine Ambassador, thanks for talking today about uh, the Barolo region in Piemonte, we'll get you back on the show at some stage to talk about other Italian wine regions, thank you. Thank you. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.